0: Good morning and welcome again. We'll be continuing, as we almost are ready to wrap up, another month, the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 12 today, but we're going to start reading in chapter 11. So if you would open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll be looking at Paul boasting of his weakness and the meaning of that and what it means to us especially. We're coming towards the end of his defense of the Christian church and the Christian faith against these people who are making inroads and trying to take over and use the Christian faith ultimately as a jumping off point or a way to for their theology or as a way of earning a living and money and power and we've seen the way that has worked throughout the book and we've been very i've been very saddened to see what was going on in Corinth Paul's uh, principal enemy here has been fighting the syncretism of the local society uh, syncretism has always been a problem in the church because we have the perfect pure word of god but culture has its beliefs, their paganism, their um, unbelieving Judaism, and they want to try and figure out how to make that work with Christianity when they become a Christian. And teachers will see an opportunity there to, to make money or to, you know, get people to follow their path instead of the Bible's path. The Reformation was all about having you know, over a thousand years of corruption of the Bible. <laughs> and the biblical doctrine in the church, trying to reform it back to the biblical doctrines. And so this is not a new problem. In the Old Testament, God warned repeatedly the people of Israel not to do as they do in the land that you're taking over, not to follow them, not to share their practices, not to worship God the way they worship their gods. And so that's a battle that is ongoing in the world and an ongoing in Paul's letter the Corinthians. Before we uh, look at any more detail, let's read the passage. We'll be starting at chapter 11, verse 30, and read through chapter 12, verse 10. That gets us the whole argument. We looked last week at the first six verses of chapter 12, which were talking about Paul's great vision of heaven where he saw things and heard things that he was not allowed to relate to others and he has wrapped that carefully in a boast about his weakness so that the glory will not go to him they will not say oh what a wonderful leader that god has had to show you these things for us he picks a vision that he can't share and wraps it in boasting about his weakness so that they won't think more highly of him than they should according to what he writes here but let us look at this uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. If I must go on boasting, there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up in the paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told which man may not utter on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And I am, for when I am weak, then I am strong. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his work. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, pray, Lord, that as we consider why Paul is boasting in weakness and what we should understand from it, what our life should be like because of it, we pray, Lord, for your spirit to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand, and our wills to change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I started off talking about syncretism being the great battle here. The Encyclopedia Britannica describes religious syncretism as a fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. In instances of syncretism, religious syncretism, for example, in Gnosticism in the early early church, was the fusion of the religious dualistic system of the heavenly of the Oriental mystery religions and Judaism and Christianity and other Greek philosophical concepts. And there are partially present throughout the entire Hellenistic period, where you see from 300 B.C. to 300 A.D., uh, the fusion of cultures that was brought about by Alexander the Great's conquest of the region. They started mixing all their religions and all their cultural practices and trying to work out what would be the best one. It was kind of the early melting pot of the region. And their paganism began to melt together, and you see the Greek gods and... The Roman gods, they have different names, but they make them the same person. And you see a lot of that going on in that day. And also their philosophical views and were, led them to a more and more syncretism where they wanted to you know, pick the best of everything and have it come together and that was what would be good for them and right. Unfortunately, the Christian church has what's perfect and from God, and there's nothing we can add to it or change in it to make it better. Every, every change, every soft peddling, every tampering, every outside idea we bring into it just makes it worth less or even make it completely worthless because it leads to a false religion. And so Orthodox Christianity always pushed back against this. This is not a new issue or a new problem. And it's not an old issue or an old problem. It goes on all the way to our day. Uh, if you want to look at the Christian era, Roman Catholicism is an ideal place to look for syncretism because they actively used it. They, When they went into different areas and tried to conquer the people and wanted them to worship according to Catholicism, they would make adaptations. We talked before about in Brazil, uh, Pastor Tito had shared with me long ago that The Brazilian Pagans would worship this male and female God. And that's where Mardi Gras actually comes from. It was a celebration of their decadence and perversion. And the Roman Catholic Church said, just call the male God Jesus and the female God Mary from now on, and you're Catholic. And so we see that sort of thing happening. And where did the Christmas tree come from? I know this has upset some people, but where did it come from? Well, they used to worship nature in Germany. And part of their ceremony on the shortest day of the year to worship the goddess of nature and bring back the light was to take an evergreen tree and put candles on it and worship the chain, worship the goddess so that she would bring the days to start lengthening instead of shortening. And somehow that got made part of Christmas. And yes, can't, nothing wrong with a Christmas tree if it's a cultural thing, not a pagan religious thing. I'm not going down that road but it's syncretism that brings this about it gets very destructive when we allow the religion to be modified by the culture as with the old testament saints when they their society started to say you know the worship of baal is like this and we should do that it will improve our worship in the temple god was never pleased In no way was God ever happy about it. Speaking of Roman Catholicism, what's happened over the years? Well, years ago, when I was young, before I was a Christian, I learned about how Roman Catholicism was actually helping spread and support Marxist revolutions in Central and South America. And they were adapting the Marxist religion into their Catholic religion. And we see that happening a lot in non-Catholic Christian loosely termed Christian circles, where the, the gospel has become you know, financial freedom and having enough food to eat, enough clothes, and equality with, between the non-working people and the working people, and essentially embracing a form of Marxism, calling it social justice, which was always injust, injustice. Uh, we, we see that happening, and the latest pope is now making peace with and showing his affection for the old plus crowd. Uh, it's getting longer and longer over the years, so hard for me to say. Uh, basically, their their religion is always evolving, taking in what the, what the society demands and dropping out the things it doesn't demand. We talked about that earlier in the book, where Paul is going on and on against peddlers of the word. Oh, what do you want to hear? What do your itching ears want to hear? We'll preach more of that. What makes you angry? Well, we won't preach that. We'll we'll make corrections in what we believe and what we teach, which is very destructive. Here in Corinth, we see some of the principles of their society coming into the church and their Greco-Roman philosophical-based society was fairly strong in Corinth, being in the Greek peninsula, and the issues came about. But it wasn't just the Greeks. It was the Jews also. Uh, Over in the book of Colossae, we learned hints of how the Jews had gotten really off in the woods of paganism with their hierarchies of angels and demons. And apparently, in Jewish culture, we read in other history books that at that era, the Jews had developed these you know, high charts of where all these angels and demons were. And where did they get that? Well, they took it straight out of the local society, the, the religious teachings. It had merged together. And Jews, of that persuasion, were causing a terrible problem in Galatia. In, uh, yeah sorry, in Colossae, and we see hints of that. We also see hints of Jews who are trying to take their erroneous view of the law of Moses and incorporate it into the church, and that really comes out in Galatia, in the book of Galatians. Here in Corinth, we have similar problems with syncretism where we're dealing with their attempts to bring in the basic principles of their society and make that the rule of practice the church. The Reformation, I think, wisely said, the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. You won't be very popular if you go to somebody and say, where do you find that in the Bible for their practice? Because a lot of our practices in the broadly evangelical world have come straight from society and have no basis in the scriptures. So what was happening in Corinth? Well, their selection of their gurus and their teachers Seem to be based on their personal characteristics, their personal greatness, their skill with Greek rhetoric, their charisma, their success, their prestige. All of those things, wealth and power, all of the things that the Jewish, uh, not the Jewish, but the, the Greek philosophers got from the people. They were raised up on a pedestal because of their personal teaching and greatness and their visions, which is why Paul is mentioning vision, and many other things. We also see it in their their use of sophistry and in their use of trash talk, because that was becoming, for failed Greek philosophers, the way of getting their philosophy to be accepted. Well, if you can't persuade them with wisdom, trick them. Uh, If the other person is gaining ground, lie about them. And so Paul was facing a lot of slanderous charges, a lot of misrepresentations of the truth, and really battling against that. Paul was not going to be syncretistic, though. He was not going to use their weapons to fight them. He was going to use the weapons God had for him to fight them. He says things like When I came to your brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You know, the rhetoric of the philosophers is what he's targeting there. If I decide to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling, as opposed to their boasts of their personal greatness and their superiority to be able to stand in front of people and win the crowd, Paul says, I had fear and trembling and came in weakness. And he says, my speech and message were not with plausible words of wisdom, again, their their profession of rhetoric, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, But in the power of God, that's 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that's one of his underlying principles of the whole book and everything he's trying to do. I'm not one of them. I'm bringing to you something totally different, and you need a complete paradigm shift, and you need to completely give up on their principles if you want to be able to be a Christian and part of the Christian church and follow the right Christian teachers. They said of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Second Corinthians 10.10. 10. You know, that's what he's battling against, that kind of personal attack. But he says in Second Corinthians 11.6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul's teaching was very clear very understandable, very much from God, not from men, from God, not from his imagination. And he makes that point to them over and over again. Of course, I expect Paul probably was a very good speaker. He was just consciously avoiding the trappings of their philosophers and rhetoric. Why do I say that? Well, if we look in Acts 14, when he was in Lystra, Paul healed a lame man. One of the signs of a true apostle, which we'll get to in a few cha- in the in the next chapter, I think, or in, later in this chapter. the The crowds saw what Paul did. Acts fourteen eleven says what he had done, and they lifted up their voices, saying, in "Laconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men." Barnabas they were calling Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Uh, According to Wikipedia, one of the most untrustworthy websites, but one that's sometimes useful for quick quotes on pagan things, Hermes was an Olympian deity in ancient Greek religion and mythology, considered the herald of the gods. He was a protector of human heralds, travelers, thieves, merchants, and orators. So by calling him Hermes, they they were calling him a messenger from God and an orator. An orator was one who that was basically what I'm doing gives a long talk uh, they were they were likening him to that, and so his skill may have been there, but he just refused to use that and certainly his ability and knowledge in his writings would come out in his speaking as well. Not all of it is clear to us, but he says everything we need to know, and he says it in a manner that's the things we need to know in an understandable manner. Uh, so here in a passage today, he's, he's again rejecting his opponents, uh, boasting, they were boasting of their, their, their personal greatness, so he's going to boast of his personal weakness. Why? Well, in part, which we will see, because it was not his power that he did these things in, but the power of God. Paul was getting out of the way, Letting the Spirit do his work. Now remember that this is surrounding that true heavenly vision of Paul, which also is a vision he picked because it's not something he can use for boasting. He was there, he saw it, and they need to understand that he's a true prophet, a true apostle of God, but he's not going to make himself glorified but God. God has this great and wonderful plan, and parts of it are still a secret from you. And the future in heaven and reality are still a bit of a secret from you. So anyway, first off, what is the purpose in his showing his weakness? We can find that. We've talked about the, the bigger battle going on because that's kind of the framework. Why would he boast in his weakness? He's countering their arguments of their, their superiority to him. And he's saying, yes, you follow them, you pick the most superior of them. You follow Christ... You follow the Bible, it has nothing to do with following me as being the greatest. So he gives a couple of examples. The first one, before he gives the vision, was in 2 Corinthians 11:30 30 to 33, leaving Damascus. He did not leave in a victorious parade where all of the Christians came and hailed his greatness and led him out in triumph over the Jews and the pagans of Damascus. Now that's what the opponents in Corinth would say would, is what should happen. Uh, Paul didn't have that. He didn't have the popularity. He didn't have the power. He didn't have the charisma. He didn't have any of the things that his opponents were saying they had. And that they were saying he didn't have. He admits he didn't have them. Paul would be hated for the message he brought. He would be attacked. People would want to kill him and he'd be forced to flee, not just in Damascus, but pretty much everywhere he went with the gospel. He was attacked. And we talked about this before. If he would just peddle the word, you know, omit the parts they don't want to hear, tickle the ears with what they do want to hear, modify it so that what they want to hear is what they really hear from you, even though it's not what the Bible says. If he would just properly peddle the word and remove all the offensive parts, then he could be victorious. See, the problem with your evangelism is that you tell them about hell and tell them about sin and tell them you deserve to go to hell. You need to eliminate that from your gospel message, and many people will embrace it. God loves you and wants wants you to have a wonderful life. If you give them that gospel, they'll embrace. Unfortunately, that gospel can't save. Paul wasn't concerned with the number of fans he had. He wasn't concerned with being loved by the public. He wasn't concerned with being loved by the pagans. He wasn't concerned with having as many converts to his cause as he could, by hook or by crook, because what happens to the church when 70% of the people are pagan? Well, they cast their vote. The pastor needs to go. We need to get one who teaches what we want to hear, the 70%, not what the 30% want. It's dangerous and destructive. And Paul wasn't responsible for building big churches. He was responsible for the souls of the people he took care of. Whether it was 10 in a city or 10,000. It was their souls that he was responsible to God for. Which is why he says he's innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he shared with them the whole counsel of God. Either they liked it or they didn't. They were converted and loved it or unconverted and hated it but he did what God gave him to do, the task that God had given him. Uh, the second example is this humbling thorn in the flesh. We hear a lot about thorns in the flesh these days. I can, I'll say my Parkinsonianism and neurological problems are a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. I, I pick those because that's what he says the purpose here was, to keep him humble, to keep him from being conceited. Now this people often wonder what was this thorn in the flesh. The only real hint we have is in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4:13 through 16 it says, "You know it was because of your bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you'd have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's interesting. What is going on? Why did they love him and, and receive him like an angel of God and Jesus Christ? Well, go back to, what is it, chapter 2, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. You know, they were a letter written by God on the heart. He was the instrument the Holy Spirit used, his preaching, his teaching, his gospel, to convert their souls. And if your soul has been converted, you know that that message, that person, was instrumental in it. And now they seem to be forgetting that and turning against him because they're getting a different teaching. Unbelieving Jews tried to marry their unbelief of Judaism into Christianity and make the two work out somehow together. But as he points out to the Galatians, they're diametrically opposed. You can't have their gospel in the true gospel and mix them. You still get a false gospel, and it's condemned. So, but note, they would have gouged out their eyes and given it to him. People think, oh, he had some kind of eye problem. It caused them to stop in, in Galatia for a while, waiting for him to, figuring out what to do and figuring out how to take him because if you're blind or nearly blind it's really hard to go on a trip on dirt roads, walking everywhere between cities and he says three times i pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me it's called the messenger of Satan you know, Satan wants to hurt the apostles, hurt the believers crush and destroy apostles and pastors and teachers and convert the faith to unbelief of the believer. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Why three? You know, we've all read the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, the purpose of which being to teach them to pray without losing heart until they get what they need. Shouldn't we pray forever until we get an answer? Uh, partially, yes, right? James says, you do not have because you do not ask in James 4.2. We don't have because we don't ask. We should therefore ask. However, we also need to be like Christ. Christ, on the night he was betrayed, gave us an example. It says he was praying, he was praying, saying, "My Father, if it is possible that this cup pass from me." You now, perfectly good and reasonable thing to pray. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to have your wrath poured out on me. I'm going to be humiliated and degraded by the cursed death on a cross, let it pass from me, a good thing. But he adds to it, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That passage in Mark 26, that was verse 39, but that passage teaches us a bit about prayer. And yes, he prayed three times, but that's not relevant. The statement, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, is the conclusion of that prayer. And with everything we pray and everything we do and all of our labors for God... We need to keep that in mind. It's not my goal, my purpose, my desire that I am working for or that I am praying for. It is your will to be done. I'm asking for the things I feel I need, but sometimes we get told you don't need that. Other times we get told, I'm not giving you that because you need to repent of your sin. But we don't hear those directly, but that's kind of the message. He prayed giving God the power. It's really arrogant for a believer to pray or for anyone to go to God in prayer thinking that God should do what we want, not his will but our will. Uh, People have been taught to pray everywhere in churches all around the country and all around the world that if you pray for God to do what you want and you command him in prayer to do it, that God has an obligation to do it for you. And if you're you know, if you're right and your faith is strong and you don't hedge your bets, you receive it. And I was trying to point those people to what Jesus said. So is Jesus wrong in hedging his bets, saying, but not my will, but your will? No, of course not. You know, our work for the church, our work to see the church grow, our efforts at evangelism, our efforts to lead a holy life, all of those are efforts to glorify God. And when we fail, you know, yes, it is our fault. But particularly in working to grow our strength and faith and grow our church and convert souls, it is God who makes the decision of who will be saved and when they will be saved. The Spirit works when and where it wills. And God has already ordained that for himself, He just doesn't share that with us. He commands us to do. I joked in Cambodia once that if I could you know call up the head office and get a list of all the people God has put in his book that live in the town we're going to, we know who to focus on. We don't have that kind of option. Should we give people who are not going to be converted the gospel? Uh, Yes. Why? Well, because they will have to glorify God for having heard the gospel, not just the, the witness of the universe around them, but the witness of the gospel directly to them make them more accountable and give more glory to God on the day he comes. But also just because God has commanded it. You don't look at somebody like the old Mark Baldwin who was a bitter atheist who hated Christians and mocked and ridiculed them and say, that man does not deserve the gospel. Because if he did, where would I be? Well, God would send somebody else in your place and I would still be saved and everything would still be the way it is because that's God's will. The, the point is, all of Paul's work was done with that principle in mind. My job is not to figure out what will please them. My job is to figure out what they need to hear from God and to deliver that to them. And it is the Spirit, as long as I do it in the best of my ability, it is the Spirit who will either bless that To bring about change, or bless that, to bring about glory to God on the day of judgment. It is not my concern, or my power, or my right to say God has to do it my way. That's what man wants to say, but that's not right. Anyway, continuing on, if it was an eye problem... galatians 6 mentions see the conclusion see what large letters i am writing to you with my own hand so he's writing in big letters why well people think maybe that was something wrong with his eyes to the thessalonians we looked at this a while back when we did second thessalonians chapter 3 verse 17 he says i write this greeting with my own hand it is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine this is the way i write they so hadn't actually read or written anything before going to Galatia the first time, and he had some kind of health problem, which may have been his eyes. And that is the way he writes now, big letters, perhaps because he cannot see. I find my writing is neater if I have my glasses on than if I don't. I'm not sure why that is, but it comes out a lot better if I put the glasses on. And Paul may have been writing in big letters because he couldn't see what he was writing if he wrote in little ones. Anyway. Not only was it a way to, for them to detect the counterfeit letters, somebody had sent them a letter claiming to be from him and threw them all into confusion. And he's writing them saying, don't listen to that, and gives them Second Thessalonians. But well, we might also say this is the result of his high problems. I expect the enemy would say to Paul, as he said to the Lord of the Cross on the cross, the enemy here not just being Satan, but the people who don't believe, you know, on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe on him. Now, they might have been mocking Paul saying, oh, you've got this eye problem, but you've, you know, you've healed these people. You've raised them almost from the dead, probably one man from the dead. And you've you know healed the lame man and they called you a god. Why can't you heal yourself? We may talk about that more when we get to the signs of a true apostle. But it may have been part of their mocking of him that he couldn't do it. Anyway, from these two examples, Paul's weakness in both situations was showing Paul had no power. Paul did not have the power of the government of Damascus to have them embrace him and let him go come and go as he will. He had to be lowered down through a window in the wall in a basket. I mean, how much more humiliating can a leader get than having to escape a city by being lowered down in a basket from the wall? How much more powerless do you appear? He had not the power. And the same with the health problem, the thorn in the flesh. He had no power over that. Jesus says, which of you by your own power can make... One hair, stand in your head, or live a day longer. If I had that power, I wouldn't be bald. <laughs> you know, we don't have that kind of power. I think these two examples are both focusing on that problem. I don't have the power to accomplish everything I want to do. I don't have the power to accomplish everything I should do. And that brings us to what he says: the purpose of the affliction to keep him from be- the purpose of the affliction, to keep him from being conceited. Christians can get conceited. God is with me. Therefore, whatever I do is good and will succeed, or whatever I succeed in is what God wants. I've met a lot of Christians who believe that. Oh, whatever works out easiest for me is God's will for me. No, that's not true. Sometimes God's will for you is to do what he said, no matter how much opposition you have and how much failure you have, how difficult or impossible it is Paul's purpose from God was to go on a missionary journey. You know, what does he say? I was in danger from this, um, robbers, in danger from pagans, in danger from Jews, in danger from hunger and thirst and exposure and shipwreck. If God's will is that we do whatever's easiest, Paul wasn't doing it right. No, Paul knew that his purpose was to go and spread the gospel, and therefore, whatever the cost, he was going to do that and trust that it was as long as he was in God's will and doing what God had sent him for, God would be with him whether he lived or died. And he wasn't going to concern himself with the results as much as his methods and his purposes, his work. He was going to do it God's way for God. Uh, that's a huge problem because that means lots of hardship for the Christian take up your cross and daily and follow Christ is his command. If you try to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's going to be the result. It's not easy. But his opponents would argue, uh, we could argue, were quite conceited. They were very self-confident, very bold, boasting very arrogantly, and They had no place with God. I think the second person, the purpose, and the one we often miss here is that it wanted, God wants Paul and wants really all Christians, whether they be leaders or not, to put their dependence on the grace of God. And that's what I see in this passage the most. God is showing him that you can't do it, you have a choice. Will you lie, cheat, steal? and use bad means to accomplish the good end I gave you? Or will you put your hope in me, do what I say, and trust in my grace being sufficient for you to do what I asked? That's something he needed to learn. That's why I picked Exodus 4 for our Old Testament reading this morning. Moses had no confidence in his ability to go and speak to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh and command them and persuade them to let the people of Israel go and let alone persuade the people of Israel to follow him out into the wilderness. He had no confidence. He said in verse 10 to the Lord, Oh my God, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Some people think maybe he stuttered or had some other problem, or maybe he just wasn't a skilled speaker. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses' answer was, "Oh, my Lord, please send someone else, which raised the anger of the Lord. Uh, What was Moses supposed to do? Well, probably to trust that God, since he had commanded him to do those things, would give him the strength and the power and the grace to do those things. Now that is something a Christian sometimes gets to a crisis in. I can't do this on my own, not the way God wants. So maybe I should put aside the way God wants and come up with a better way that'll work, even though God might not quite agree. And that's what we do. And that's what the pagans all do. They don't care about God's word or his law or his rules. We don't have the power. We don't have the skill, but we know who does. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's where his hope lies, in God strengthening him. And souls are not saved, and the true church is not grown by the preacher's skill, wisdom, techniques, by his soft-peddling things and tampering with the word. That is not how a real church grows, not how Christians grow but through the power of the Holy Spirit, using the word of God. And that is what it does. As Isaiah says, my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish what, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. Uh, we can trust in God. God doesn't say, do this and come up with a way to make it work like the boss at work might. He says, Do this, and we should trust in Him. When we are weak, He is strong. When we say to Him, There's no way I can do this, Lord, I need you, then He can come and be glorified in doing it for us. We say, Oh, I got this, well, 90%, I can do it. Then where does God come in? Where is His place? So nine, the end of verse 9 and 10, this perfect weakness leads to the power of God being able to be de- deployed. Paul will boast in his weakness. He'll celebrate his weakness. He wants to be weak, and he is content with his weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because his weakness allows God to show God's strength in him. Not by my power, but by the power of God is what Paul was looking for. Understanding and accepting and embracing his personal powerlessness helped him to rely on an omnipotent God. And the same is true for us. When we acknowledge we can't do it, we don't have that wisdom, we don't have that strength, we don't have that ability. We don't know which choice will work out. I was thinking of computer games recently, and I remembered I had played one once. We had to pick your dialogue choices from four, and almost every time I would throw my hands up and say, they're all horrible. I want a different choice. Well, we pick the one that is right before God. We don't worry about that perfect choice that will get us what we want. We pick the one that is closest. We do what is right before God, closest to what God tells us to do in the word. Control freaks have a real problem with this. And there's a little control freak in a lot of people. There there are some people who want to be led and can only be led. There are other people who think, this can't work out unless I can control everything and make it work out. In management, I saw this sometimes. There were managers who were smart enough to say, everyone who works for me knows their job way better than I know their job. I can do all of them, perhaps, but they're experts in each area, and I need to rely on them and get them to cooperatively work together so that we can accomplish more than I can accomplish. Then there were other managers who had to control every single thing you did, even though they didn't understand it. I remember a Dilbert commercial where Dilbert Dilbert cartoon, the little one-page cartoons, they were very popular at GE. He's going on and on explaining something, and the manager says, is thinking, the little bubble of thinking, I didn't understand a word of that, so it must not be important. Uh, you know, the control freak, though, thinks, if I don't control what everything everybody does, and I don't control every result, and they don't do exactly what I expect, and succeed in the way I want them to succeed, and accomplish exactly what I want them to accomplish, it'll fail. And therefore, I need to control everything. And they bring that into their Christian life, into Christian leadership, and what ends up happening, the Lord has no place. The gifts God has given to people have no place. They alone have to decide everything, because they cannot trust God. And to some extent, they lack faith in God's sovereignty, and we all do at times. The Bible says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, and been predestined according to the purpose of him and works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. So he works everything out according to the counsel of his own will. He will, not us. And he wants success and he will get success according to his will and his counsel, not according always to ours. And this even applies to the godless. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. the lot is cast into the lap, but as every decision is from the Lord. He is sovereign over everything. And we need to repent of thinking, if I don't make this work, it's going to be a failure. Because God may want it to work or may not want it to work, and it is God's will that will be done. We can't just say, oh, I'm going to let go and let God, because that's the opposite of being a control freak, is being, I don't have to do anything and it's all God's fault. We are called to do things and to do them, but do them the right way. We can't shade the truth. We can't soft-pedal the word. We can't tamper with what it says to make it acceptable. You know, in our faith, in our practice, we do what God says and trust in him for the results. Uh, this is, to some extent at least, a lack of faith in God's promises. God has promised many great things, including my favorite in Romans eight twenty eight. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's going to work this out for my good. I don't have to worry about the result. I have to worry about the means I use and the things I do and the attitudes of my heart. Uh, People who think I'm responsible for the result are usurping God's place in our life. And it's arrogance and it's a rejection, really, of God's power and sovereignty. And I can't stress enough, though, that we need to then do not what we think will get us the result, but do what we think will please God the most. Even if that means suffering. Uh, Occasionally it may mean I do nothing, because there's nothing I can do about a situation. Other times it may mean I go through the fire to make it happen. In all things, yes, it means we pray. We approach the throne of grace pouring out our needs, pouring out our concerns, asking God for the wisdom to do what is right and the grace to see maybe the result we desire. God's promises are very important. And to some extent, I think the control freak, the person who wants to control everything to get the right result, the one who will compromise to get the right result, they realize that maybe the result, if, even if God, if God is sovereign and gets his result his way, you know, maybe that's not the result I want. My result and God's result are not the same all the time. And they want their result instead of God's. And so we all can run into those problems from time to time and we need to repent of them. But it's hard to rely on God when we think of weakness it's dependent on the grace of God, not my skill, not my power, not my authority, not my charisma, not my ability to manipulate others or to control the situation, but it depends on God's grace. It's hard to accept that and say, I will live that way and do whatever God says, even though I know the result is going to be what Paul says you will be persecuted. Being weak really does mean drawing near to the throne of grace in prayer, humbling ourselves, and trusting that whatever answer God sends is the right one. My job is not the results. My job is the means, the doing, what will glorify God, what he has commanded us to do. That is the sum of the Great Commission, right? Teach them to do, to keep all the commandments that have given you to do, all the things I've commanded you to do. That's where we go. Remember in Romans 11, Paul really comes to this conclusion. And in three or four years, as we go through Romans, we may get to 11, (laughs) Lord willing. But he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God and who has been his counselor? The person who wants to control the outcome and achieve the outcome they desire wants to be God's counselor. Wants to tell God what to do. Wants to know the mind of God and correct it. You know, who has given God a gift that he might be repaid? For through, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Now, Paul understood that God's plan was better than his. And God's desired results were better than his. And God's wisdom, because God's wisdom was great, infinitely greater than his. And his power to accomplish it was infinitely greater than his. What part then can we play in the kingdom of God? Doing what God wants and trusting him to accomplish his ends. Doing it to the best of our ability, with complete sincerity, with complete holiness and honesty and integrity. So where does weakness come in? Well, acknowledging that God alone can work out his purpose. We simply do what God has commanded. We do it to our utmost ability. And we don't do what God has forbidden. Even if it would make the solution come out a little easier. We trust in him to glorify himself, accomplish his purpose. The ends do not justify the means, but the means are a a way of glorifying God. And his ends. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that we are strong in our weakness, because in weakness, your strength can come through. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to put your ends at the highest regard, but to only use the means you have prescribed and never use the means you have not. To do all things for your kingdom and your glory not for our comfort not for our happiness not for our wealth not for our popularity or power or any of the things of the world we might desire but to do it your way and at the end of our life to be able to say i did it god's way pray this in jesus name amen